tonight, we continue our series in the book of Job. One of the questions that humanity has wrestled with for thousands of years is, if there is a God, what is God like? It wasn't until somewhere in the 16th century that we get the rise of atheism. So for thousands of years before that, people are talking about God or gods. What are they like? How can we figure them out? How can we please them? How can we make them happy? How can they work in our favor? We see this all throughout the Bible too, actually. Our story begins with God creating the universe, God creating humanity, and him interacting with us, giving us guidelines of seemingly ways that we can please him. When we talk about God and what God is like, we are quickly met with questions about evil. Did God create evil? Does God allow evil to run rampant? Is God powerful over all of the evil in the world? If so, why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? It's impossible to talk about who God is apart from these questions about evil. Again, this is not just a question that Christians have, have to face and deal with. This is a question that has faced humanity for thousands of years. And this should probably clue us into the fact that whatever answers we may come up with, they are not perfect answers and they may not even be satisfying or comforting answers either. But if anything, we should know that we are in great company when we ask these questions and press into the difficulty and the complexity. People are often attempting to explain or harmonize three things, and these will be on the screen for you. God is all-powerful, God is completely good, and evil exists. Some would compromise one of these three things, and it would look something like this. Since we have no doubt that there is evil in the world, either God is not all-powerful or God is not completely good. Christians will typically try to work these three together to harmonize them to how they can coexist with one another. However, the Jewish understanding is very different, where they would see a contention between be God being all-powerful and God being all-good, they would make a concession with God's power. Said another way, that God's goodness takes precedent over his power. I say all this to help us understand and to explain the theological dynamics that are happening and taking place in this book. Tonight, we begin the part of this book that focuses on the conversation between Job and his friends, and this happens in poetry. A specific note about the genre of poetry. Poetry, while it can certainly convey rich and deep, beautiful theological truths, it's certainly not an effective writing style to convey specificity or precision. Here's what I mean. Here's a couple verses from later in the book of Job when God is talking to Job. He says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? Does this mean that there are actual storehouses of snow somewhere in the sky or in the heavens? Are there houses of hail? If so, Reuben could have used these houses of hail several months ago. But now what we know through meteorology is we know about snow and hail and rain and seasons and how they work. Here's another one. From whose womb... Ice comes, comes the ice. Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the water comes from hard, when the water becomes hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Does God have a womb? And if he does, does ice come out of it? God gives birth to frost? Does that mean whenever we wake up and there's frost on the ground, we should go out and thank God for giving birth? 
Hopefully you can see what I mean. Poetry is beautiful and it conveys certain points about God, but it's not meant to be precise or technical. It doesn't mean that what God is saying isn't true, but there's a difference between something being true literally or scientifically and something conveying a deep theological truth about God or humanity. Said another way, we will see this book say something about God that's actually pointing us to what it means more than what it is saying. Maybe God has a womb that shoots out ice. I don't know. But perhaps this is trying to tell us something else about who God is and who God is and his power. Poetry is challenging, especially Hebrew poetry. So this is another one of the complexities of this book that is deep and complicated. And this theological dialogue is happening within poetry, which is a terrible means of talking about God. Remember, this book is beautiful, but wildly complex and complicated. So let us begin with the end of chapter two. Job and his three friends that join him. This is what the book of Job says in chapter two, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. What is often overlooked is these friends actually sit with Job in silence for seven days. This is a long time. Can you imagine sitting with someone in silence for 10 minutes that is grieving, let alone seven days. That must have felt like an eternity. Yet these friends show up and they are faithful. They are faithful with their presence, but their words will soon betray them. Their presence is steadfast, but their friendship is built on something else. And as this starts out, it starts out well. But then in the next 11 chapters, we will have a cycle of speeches from these three friends. As I said last week, part of the challenge that I have is to condense 12 chapters of Job into one sermon. So we're going to go through these cycles of what Job and his friends are talking about. Eliphaz here starts. Pause, I think my notes are mixed up. I lost a page. We'll continue without that page. (laughs) So these friends, it's somewhere. So these friends, these three friends, these are the meanings behind their name and the locations that they come from. So Eliphaz here, his name literally means, my God is gold. So here we're already immediately clued into this idea of religion that is happening within Eliphaz and the things that he's going to say to Job. His very name means my God is gold. Next we have Bildad, whose name simply means gold. Not my God is gold, but simply gold. A clue about wealth and prosperity. And the last is Zophar. And Zophar comes from a land of wisdom. So to recap, we have three friends that are coming to Job that represent different areas across ancient Near Eastern cultures 
and different things. They represent religion, they represent wealth, and they represent wisdom. And these are the people that are coming to Job. Now, as the story is setting out, these are great friends that would come to give advice. These are people you would want to listen to. What's also happening is these people represent the different cultures and different thoughts that are happening back at this time. Remember, this is not a question that's unique to Israel that they are trying to figure out on their own. This is a question that everyone is dealing with throughout many different cultures. And so what we start is we get the words from Eliphaz, and this is what he says in Job 3 as he's talking to Job. He says, Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feebled hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Eliphaz is saying to Job, you are a good person. You know it. You have been this great person to others. We should look forward. There was going to be a resolution. We know how to get to the bottom of this. Eliphaz is operating out of this triad that's now specific to the book of Job that says, God is all-powerful, God is completely good, and Job is a good person. These are the three things that Eliphaz is approaching, and so for him, one of these things must be out of sorts. For him, he believes that it must be that Job is not a good person. Job has done something wrong. Eliphaz is strongly representing the rightness or the justice of God. For God punishes when someone has done wrong. Would God ever punish the innocent, as Eliphaz says? Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Eliphaz is saying, look, Job, you must have done something wrong to deserve this because God is just, and he wouldn't just punish someone who is innocent. But these words are absurd. Where have the, the upright ever been destroyed? It's not hard to look throughout history and see how upright and faithful people have been killed and destroyed. Millions of Christians have lost their lives at the hands of persecution. Millions have lost their lives due to injustice and genocidal killings across the globe and throughout history. It's complete arrogance and naivety to have a claim like this. And he goes on, who being innocent has ever perished? Think of the amount of children that have lost their lives through countless ways throughout history. Plenty of people who are innocent have gone through extreme torture and death and injustice. It's important to remember that what is happening in this book is a critique of bad theology. Eliphaz, whose name means my God is gold, is riddled with awful theology. This is purposeful and intentional. He comes with this brand of religion and it certainly does zero favors to Job and zero favors of God. This is what we often deem a transactional view of God. Something has gone wrong, therefore you have deserved this punishment. And this progresses, it looks like asking for forgiveness, and then there will be a restoration to whatever wealth or prosperity you may have. You've done something wrong, now repent and everything will go back to normal. This is the idea that when things are going well, God is favoring you, and when things are going poorly, you've done something wrong to warrant this punishment. Maybe you've heard it like this before from someone. You're going through a hard time. 
And it could be a variety of things, of loss, of pain, of suffering. And you're talking with someone, and they have questions like, you're talking with someone, and your question is, how did this relationship end? Why does my parent have to get cancer? Why did this person die? And then this person has the nerve to say to you something like this. Well, you, do you have unconfessed sin in your life? As if there's some secret thing that you've done that God is holding against you until you search it out and repent. What kind of God is that? As a petty and a small God. This is how we see this theology worked out. You're going through something hard, but all of a sudden, maybe it's something that you have done wrong. Or maybe you've heard it like this. Well, if you just had more faith, God would heal you or God would heal the person you're praying for. If you've ever been told either of these lies, I'm sorry. They're wrong, they're heartbreaking. These statements can often be wielded and weaponized against us, while often offered by people who are well-meaning but are misguided and it's founded in a harmful theology. And this isn't something that's only worked out on a personal level. We hear this on a national level as well. Have you ever heard this verse? If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I will restore their land. This is just a nationalistic version of a transactional view of God. This perspective in our country is that we are going down the drain. We are a godless and secular nation and if we only repent, we would be restored to prosperity. That God will restore our land. This narrative often goes something like this. We were established as a Christian nation. There's something exceptional about us, and we want to return to the state of perceived favor and prosperity again. What is missed in this narrative is twofold. That the seeming prosperity that we look back on came on the backs of slaves and the continued racism of people of color within our country. And the second lie of this narrative is it mistakes our, America's place of exceptionalism within God's plan. There's no promise, there's no scripture that says America is within God's plan or God's blessedness or God's prosperity. We should certainly work for a better and more just society, but that's not to, make, that's not to mistake our seemingly decline as a punishment for a corporate sin or mistake our prosperity as favoritism or blessedness. Yes, we have corporate sins that we need to repent of and to address and confess, but this is not a magical repentance that immediately prompts God to wave a wand and eradicate all sin and injustice. Anytime the presence of pain and suffering leads us to question our blessedness or our prosperity or our possible sinfulness, you can be certain that this theology is warped. And this theology isn't new to us. It's an insidious theology that's been around since the beginning of time. This is what Eliphaz is saying and espousing. It's the theology that Israel was familiar with. That when things went well, they were obedient and they prospered. And it was conflated with the idea that as long as things were going well, we must have the favor of God, which then excludes whenever things are going bad, we must be judged, which is why this is so confounding to them. They think Job has done something wrong because they can't get their minds out of this transactional view. This is why the psalmist often says, why do the wicked prosper? because they can't wrap their mind around the wicked prospering because they're doing wrong, they're not being obedient, yet they're still prospering. But what we know that those who are wicked, they prosper because they lie, they abuse others. It comes at the expense of humans. 
This is not something that's new, but it's something that's being revealed to us in the book of Job. Harold Kushner, who's a rabbi, he has a, a great quote about this and what is happening. Think of it this way. If we, by our righteous behavior, could compel God to treat us well, to bless us with health and prosperity, and guard our children from harm, would he still be the all-powerful master of the universe? Or would he be reduced to some supercomputer capable of doing awesome things beyond the capacity of any human being, but only if we tell it to? Would we have turned God into a cosmic vending machine? Insert the proper number of good deeds, prayer, charity, forgiveness, those, forgiveness of those who hurt us. Pull the plunger for the blessing you want and you don't get it. Feel entitled to curse the machine and take your business elsewhere. This reveals the holes and the weakness of a view of God that is like this. How can God be all powerful and all good when he's just subjected to the seeming will of the righteous person? Is repentance just a means of getting right with God so that we can move back into his favor and love? Whether it can be personal or on a national front, is God just waiting for us to say the magic words so that he can wave his wand and restore our land? This type of God leaves no room for honesty, no room for heartache. Any honesty is out of the question because it would seemingly challenge the power and the sovereignty of God. Any heartache is out of the question because it is just and warranted because you or someone you know has done something to merit this punishment. This is the argument of Bildad later in this book. Your children are dead because they must have done something wrong to deserve that. Yet there is no relationship without honesty and heartache. No relationship is free of anger and Job has a lot of anger. Krishner goes on to say this, being angry at someone who matters to us, a parent, a lover, even God, need not shatter a relationship. Anger can be part of an honest relationship. Ultimately, I would like to think that we can come to realize that God is on our side and not on the side of the misfortune. I will insist that a God worth worshiping is a God who prefers honest anger to flattery. And Job continues with honest anger. This continues to be a harsh dialogue rather than an empty monologue. Job is deep in it. And this is what he, what he continues in, in chapter nine and chapter 10. In chapter nine, he says this, it is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? In chapter 10, he says, I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger towards me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so that I can have a moment's joy. Job is seething with anger. And honestly, can you blame him? He's lost everything. And he's yet to get any explanation from God or from his friends that is reasonable or comforting. He continues to question the goodness of God. To him, what good is an all-powerful God if that God is also not good? 
Job can see the omnipotence of God. That's not what he's questioning. What he is questioning is the goodness or the justness of God. What Job yearns for, and I think what on a certain level we yearn for, is a God powerful enough to protect and to redeem the innocent, but not so utterly powerful as to be beyond the constraints of fairness and compassion. We crave the justness and the goodness of God. In contrast to his friend's theological arguments and pithy explanation, Job offers his own experience. His friends cite abstract beliefs, theological generalities, and empty platitudes. Yet these beliefs pervade their thinking, and they're in our thinking today as well. Yet Job offers this real, hard, undeniable facts of his loss and his illness. His experience becomes more persuasive than any bad theology that his friends can conjure up. He comes with anger and honesty. Can God be both good and all-powerful? What good is his power if it is not good and smiles on the plans of the wicked, as he said in chapter 10? I said last week, and I'll say it this week, and probably every week, there aren't many answers throughout this book, and there are no answers tonight either. But what we do have is we have a companion in Job. His words can be our words. He starts this poetic section in Job 3 with a lament that is raw and honest. His lament can be our lament. One of the beautiful things of this book is I believe it gives us permission to be seething with rage. It allows us to be confused and perplexed. If you have some anger or question about God, you are not alone. Job has those same questions and he's likely had them in a more rageful way. The prayer that we pray throughout this whole series is the only real response that we have tonight. If any of these words in the book of Job give voice to your feeling, know that you are not alone. May it all be an invitation to a deeper experience of God. That somehow in the mystery of who God is, we can say, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you.